Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We're continuing our series. Uh, we've been calling this series, I Am Coming Soon, the book of Revelation. And so if you ever wondered, what is that book about? It's about how Jesus is coming back. He's the great I Am. He is God coming flesh, and he is coming. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 12 through 17 this morning, a sermon I'm calling Pergamum, the Church of Tolerance. So today we're looking at the third church that Jesus mentions by name in the book of Revelation. Jesus mentions a total of seven different churches. Uh, and today we're going to look at what he said to the third church, the third the church in the city of Pergamum. But I think it's important for us to remember these are real churches. They existed. They had pastors. They met for the study of the scriptures and the worship of the one true God. And they were located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And each week, two weeks before, today, and four weeks to come, Lord willing, unless Jesus does come back, and I'm okay with that plan if that's his plan. But if, if we're going to ask ourselves, do we look like the, the church that Jesus is speaking to? Do we resemble any of these churches, maybe bits and pieces and aspects of the different churches that Jesus is addressing in his letter? There was the church in Ephesus. They were the church that fell out of love. They had people, church members, that became fundamentalists. They had right doctrine. They worked hard. They suffered for Jesus. But they failed when it came how they treated others. They lost their love for the lost. And somehow what they did is they allowed truth, which is a very good thing, to trump love. That's a bad thing. And then last week, we looked at the church at Smyrna. They received only praise from Jesus. They were the suffering church. They had only commendations for Jesus, no criticisms at all. They had a very famous martyr. Uh, it was a man by the name of Polycarp. Okay, he was their pastor. He was burned alive and stabbed to death for, the, for his faith in Christ. Well, let's go ahead and read what Jesus says to the third church, the church in the city of Pergma. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some who have hold to the teaching of Balaam, and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give to him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus begins his letter to the church at Pergamum very similarly to the way he begins all of his letters. Jesus said, and to the angel of the church at Pergamum, write... He begins seven intros to the seven churches saying something very similar to what he said back in Revelation chapter 1. Back up in Revelation to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 16. It says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. 
Jesus wants the church in Pergamum, the congregation, the people to know something. He wants them to know that he knows all. He knows all and he sees all and he pays attention to all. If you are reading from a red letter Bible, red letter Bible, you'll notice that everything written in chapter two and chapter three is in red. And that is keying you in on the fact that Jesus says everything to the church. He is the primary author of this entire book, but specifically to what is written to the seven churches in these seven letters. And what he wants them to know is that he's no longer dead, that he's alive, and he's seated at the right hand of God, that he holds the keys to death and Hades, that he has the means and the authority over life and death itself, meaning he has the right to grant life, and he has the right to take it away. That Jesus, the exalted Savior, knowing, the all-knowing, omniscient, omnipotent one. And he wants them to know that he's paying very close attention to the church in Pergamum. And by extension, I think he wants us to know that he's paying very close attention to Cross, Cross Point Baptist Church as well. That he knows all the strengths. He knows all the weaknesses of, of the church. He knows everything. He knows everything that happens inside his church. And thus, I think he wants us to know that, that he knows what we do. That he knows what we do and he knows what we don't do. And he knows how we serve. And he knows how we don't serve. And I say this because Pergamum, like us, we are his church. We exist for him. And why do I say that? I say that because he died for his church. He, he paid for the church. He bought the church with the price of his blood. And so Pergamum is his church, his bride, that he is the groom, that Jesus is the head of the church, all of the church. He is the CEO of the church, the chief shepherd, the senior pastor of all the churches. So that should tell us the cross point is not my church. It's not your church, but yet it is his church. That The people of this church, you and me, we don't belong to anything else. We belong to him. And since this is his church, what he says about the church and how it should operate, it goes. And if you disagree with King Jesus, I'd encourage you to change your mind. And Jesus has an opinion about this particular church that we're studying. The church in the city of Pergamum. Jesus mentions all the good, all the bad, all the ugly in the church in Pergamum. The, the ancient city of Pergamum, it, it's now destroyed, but it, it, it was once a beautiful city. The city below, and then it's got this huge part, portion of the city that was mainly dedicated for the, the worship of a false god. It was up on the top of this hill. And the city Pergamum, Pergamum means height. It means elevation in Greek. And so, like I said, the ancient city of Pergamum, it, 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 it's, it's, it's now, the, it was up on top of this, this mountain, and down below is the city of Bergama in modern-day Turkey. It, the, the city is below, and then up on the height, about a thousand feet up, is the rest of this amphitheater and false temples above the city below. Pergamum is 55 miles north of Ephesus, and it lies 20 miles off the Aegean Sea. Typically, in the ancient world, the affluent citizens, what they would do, they would build their, their houses up on top of a, of a mountain because um, it's easier to defend yourself if you're up on a mountain if someone should try to invade you. And so the people in Pergamum, they were blessed with these beautiful um, views and city that the, or safety that their city provided them. 
Pergamum had these fortified walls, and it was said that Alexander the Great stored up to around a billion dollars worth of gold in the ancient city of Pergamum. So Pergamum was like a bank, if you will, for Alexander the Great. And yet down the mountain, that's where the commoners and the peasants would live in the villages. And down in the city, there was this, this place called the Achilleopus. That, that word means healing. So Pergamum had one of the very first ancient cities that had these massive spas, if you will. And people would go there and they would try to find healing for some different diseases they were struggling with. And they would use these alternative medicines. I'm using that word loosely of either water therapy, music therapy. They would have these sleep chambers that were all underground. And what would happen, the the people would go down to these sleep chambers and, and the doctors, I'm using that word loosely again, would be up above and they'd be yelling down encouraging words to their, their patients below. Pergamum was the capital city of Asia Minor for, um, for 250 years till eventually it was surpassed in its size and importance by the city of Ephesus. And theologians suggest that there's probably 150,000 people that are li- living in Pergamum as, as John writes the book of Revelation. There's, there's this huge amphitheater that's up on top of that mountain, which was the steepest amphitheater in the ancient world. And it held up to uh, 15,000 people at one time. And that amphitheater was used to host thousands of, of lectures. And Pergamum was the, one of the first cities to manufacture parchment in the city. So, so Pergamum was also the center of learning and education in the ancient world. It had one of the largest libraries in the ancient world, had uh, 200,000 books in that library. And it was said that when Mark Antony, at one time he conquered Pergamum, he gave all the books to his love, love of his life, Cleopatra. There's four main deities that were worshipped. Really, there was all sorts of deities, but the main four was uh, Athena. She's the victory goddess. Zeus, the god of the god. Dionysus, he's the god of wine. And Achilleopus, that means healing. He's the god of healing. And that, that, the, the, what happened is these pagan deities, they're worshipped up on these mountains, the mountaintops, and, and down below, there was all the, the those who were trying to to heal themselves in the Achilleopus. And so it was a very pagan city to live in. Also, there was a temple that was solely dedicated to the worship of the emperor Domitian. Domitian was, I'm going to sugarcoat this for us today, but he was not a likable guy. History said that his own wife plotted his murder. And he was the most powerful man in in the ancient world. Usually what would happen is, is emperors would rule and reign. Then after they died, it would be said that their body was, or their spirit was carried to the spirit world, and there they were with the other gods. Domitian skipped all that stuff. He didn't wait till he died. He declared himself to be God as he sat on the throne. So there was no other city that, that rivaled Pergamon, the worship of Caesar. So there was a temple that was built to, to Caesar in 29 B.C., and I say all this because this is the background of the, the false worship in the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was like the city of polytheism during that time. That means worshiping many gods. But Christianity is monotheistic. We only worship one God. So I want you to realize that the Christians in Pergamum, they were not persecuted for their worship of the one true God. 
they were persecuted for their exclusive worship of the one true God. Okay? In Christianity, we, have, we are exclusive. We only worship one God. What's the first commandment? You remember that? No other gods, right? And Jesus is God. We worship no one, nothing else other than Jesus. The church in the city of Smyrna, they were persecuted because they believed this also, but then they lived it out with their life. The church at Pergamum, this one, the church we're studying today, they capitulated. They bent, they, they caved the, into the pressure that the society they lived on put on them. The church at Pergamum, they allowed the worship of these other gods. And they allowed their worship of these other gods to affect their life, the way they lived. And so thus they diminished their influence, their witness to the unbelievers in Pergamum. And I would say that our American culture has very much gone this way. We have embraced pluralism that says there's many ways to get to God. Because the vast majority of Americans, if you ask them today, they would not say that Jesus is the way to God. They would say, well, he's just a way. So the American church in, in, in general has gone, very much gone the way of the church in Pergamum. I think in the ancient city of Pergamum, if they had that coexist bumper sticker, they'd have it on the back of their chariots driving around town. If you remember that, does anybody remember that bumper sticker? The sea for the crescent moon, and then you go on down. I remember very vividly in California, I saw a guy have that bumper sticker on the back of the car, but he cut off the T. Well, at least that guy's being honest with what he, what he believes, right? But like Pergamum, the American church in general, we get some stuff wrong. But we get some stuff right, too, at the same time. Let's read what Pergamum got right. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Here's my first point this morning. Point number one. Christians are not to compromise the gospel despite the darkness of the culture they live in. So right off the bat, Jesus tells us where Satan's throne is located. There's some very popular opinions today that says that Satan's throne that Jesus is talking about here is located in Geneva, Switzerland. And they come up with that theory because there is a very famous martyr that was killed in Geneva, Switzerland three or four decades before John writes this letter. Now, now, that being said, there is some, if you don't know this, there are some very demonic things that are happening in Geneva right now. But that's not remaining true to the text. There are some demonic things happening in Geneva, so it seems like that would be a good place to say that that's where Satan's throne is. But Jesus says that Satan's throne is in Pergamum, according to Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. Now, Pergamum, they had this very faithful believer named Antipas, and he didn't he didn't compromise the pressure to give into the God, to, to, to change the gospel. And he suffered because of it. It's the same name as the guy that's killed in Geneva. It's the two different guys, same name, both killed for their faith in Jesus. And there's not a lot known of Pergamon's Antipas. Church history says this Antipas was put in a bowl and burned alive for his faith in Christ. And Jesus calls him my faithful witness. The name Antipas translated, it means one who suffers in the place of another. The same title, faithful witness, is used for Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And Antipas suffered. 
and experience martyrdom for the sake of Christ. But what did Jesus mean when he said that Satan's throne is in Pergamum? Does Satan have a literal throne and it's located in Pergamum? I don't think that's what Jesus means. I think what Jesus is saying is like, this is the epicenter of demonic activity at that time. Because if you think about it, up on that mountaintop, there's this pantheon of false gods. And if we go into how do you worship those gods, it would, it would blush everybody here. So I'm not going to do that today. And then down below, there's this, this uh, healing center that people would go and they would try to attempt to get healed. And then there was also the worship of Caesar. And you had to do some unspeakable things in your worship of Caesar. And so I think what Jesus is saying, he's saying there's a lot of negative influences in the city of Pergamum to, to sugarcoat it a lot. Jesus is saying, I know the spiritual condition of a city like Pergamum. Jesus is saying, Pergamum is a tough place to be a Christian. And I think he probably says the same thing to the American church. It's tough to be a Christian if you're going to be a, a Christian in the, in the culture of America. It's tough now, but it's going to get worse. Jesus says, I know it's tough, but don't compromise. Here's our application that we take from this. Christians can never compromise the gospel. And and compromising the gospel can be something that's unassuming, just as, as bending with the beliefs that on the surface level might seem harmless. A believer can never surrender our beliefs on the whims of the culture and say that there is another way to Christ, because there's not. We have to refuse to bend, but we have to know at the same time, if we don't bend, backlash is coming. Read verse 14. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. Here's my second point. Point number two, Christians are not to tolerate sin by bowing to the pressure to be open-minded. Jesus has two things against his church. He, he mentions two heretics. He mentions Balaam, and Balaam comes from the Old Testament. And, and in verse 15, we're going to read this in a second, he's going to mention the Nicolaitans. In case you're not familiar with Balaam, and there's another guy, Balak, Balak was the king of Moab. And he was a guy that hated Israel. He's always trying to, to stomp out Israel. And so he sends a messenger to Balaam, and he, he essentially hires Balaam to curse Israel. Balaam was a prophet, if you will, a false prophet to hire. You pay him, and he'll pronounce a curse. But the problem is, he has no real power to curse anybody. Well, anyways, on three different occasions, Balaam tries to curse Israel, but instead of cursing Israel, only blessings came out of his mouth. And Balak gets angry at Balaam because he's paid to do a job. He didn't do the job he's paid to do. Balak says, I called you to curse them and you have blessed them three times. I would have paid you if you did what I told you to do. That's essentially what he says. And then Balaam in turn says, even if you would give me all the silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad. Whatever the Lord speaks, that that I speak. And so Balaam gives a final speech and he says this. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. Remember, Balak is the king of Moab. Balaam is pronouncing a, a curse on the king he's speaking to. 
And then Balaam's not mentioned again until Numbers chapter 31. Then after the Israel, they conquered the Midianites, the king and all the males are killed. If you remember this. Israel plunders them and takes all their possessions, but they left the women and children alive. And when Moses hears about this, that they let the women live, it said in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, it says, Behold these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the, in- in the incident of Peor. And so the plague of among the congregation of the Lord. And so you're thinking, well, what was the, the incident of Peor? Well, right after Balaam and Balak, they, after they, they separate, they go back. We have to back up in the, in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people became, uh, began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And they invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. So what Israel was doing was they were allowing them to intermarry people of other faiths. And over a very short period of time, the worship of the one true God was corrupted because of this intermarrying of other faiths. And just as as Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Stumbling blocks is idolatry. Okay, it, it is the, the worship, offering, uh, eating of, of meat sacrificed to idols, and it's, uh, it's just debauchery, all rolled into one. So here's how it went down. Let's, let's review. Let's sum this up. Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel. Three times he tried, three times he failed. And since it didn't work, okay, Balaam teaches the people to curse themselves. How do you curse yourself? By marrying into other faiths. And the result is the, the merger of the worship of Yahweh and with the merger of the worship of other false gods. And so the result is hearts that are far from God. That's the result. Do you get it? Since Balaam couldn't curse Israel because God is their God, you can't curse God's people unless God allows it. Since that doesn't work, he gets them to curse themselves. By allowing the idolatry to come to God's people through the intermarrying with other faiths. It's a Trojan horse situation. We can't open the door, so let's get them to open the door themselves. Bring the Trojan horse in and we'll just destroy him from the inside out. This is why it's so important that believers only marry other believers. Why? Because the next generation is at stake. That's why. If you don't love God enough, single people, listen up. If you don't love God enough to only marry another believer, then really your kids are going to have no chance at all. If one generation is kind of on the fence with their, their, their faith and their worship and their fidelity to the one true God, the next generation is going to be off the fence altogether. There's a new Pew study from Pew Research Center came out and said that in 2020, just three years ago, the number of Americans that reported themselves to be Christians, now let's not split hairs and say, are they real Christians or not? Probably a lot of them are not, but let's just go with this. In 2020, the report was 64%. 64% of Americans reported to be Christian. Back up 50 years. 1970, 
it was reported 90% of Americans reported themselves to be Christians. That's a drop of 40% in one generation. I have to think that very soon, if not now, the percentage of Americans that report to be Christians is less than 50%. And the ramifications of that is catastrophic. Keep reading Revelation chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus says, and so you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here's point number three. Christians cannot compromise their beliefs. Do you remember the Nicolaitans? I know you do. We learned about them back when we studied about the church in Ephesus. What their founder did is he took Christianity and he synchronized it with the worship of Artemis, the fertility goddess. So you take Jesus, his atoning sacrifice, his forgiveness of sins by grace through faith. Just mix mix in a little uh, temple prostitution. Isn't that wonderful? You take Christianity and then you say that's a get out of hell free card to live however you want sexually. It's a mixture of Christianity and demonism and paganism and sexual perversion. Now the church at Ephesus, with their very strict, conservative, unloving congregation, they hated the work of the Nicolaitans. And so did Jesus. Jesus, or excuse me, Ephesus hated what the Nicolaitans taught. The problem is Pergamum did not. Pergamum didn't hate the work of the Nicolaitans. They embraced the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Instead of opposing heresy, these false teachers, these false leaders who were leading people astray, the believers in Pergamum, they accepted this into their church. Yeah, sure, Jesus, get you out of hell free, and now just go live and do anything you want. That's, what the, that's the message you heard in Pergamum. So here's the application for us. And I'm going to begin this application with a question. The question is, how do we avoid becoming like a church in Pergamum? We have to remember that truth trumps tolerance. Our American culture, uh, it's told that, that tolerance is the greatest virtue that anyone could possibly um, show. Today, tolerance means never saying that anyone or anything is wrong. The problem with that, that always leads to total depravity. Now, truth is tolerant, but true tolerance means loving somebody enough to tell them that they're wrong. Now, the church at Ephesus, they were all about truth, but they had no love for the lost. While the church at Pergamum, they were about truth, but not, but not, not, not enough love with the truth to remain true to the truth, if that makes sense. I want you to know that a tolerant, compromising church will begin to drift with culture. And they're not going to remain true to truth. They're going to allow error. They're going to bring error into the truth, into the church at the same time. Because what happens with that, it's one hand is grasping onto faith, and the other hand is grasping onto false teachings. That's the model for Balaam. Balaam was the father of syncretism. It's a mixture of truth and error, faith and pagan worship. He would teach a believer to hold on to one's personal faith and yet at the same time embrace everything that false teaching uh, um, teaches. Let me, let me kind of demonstrate what I'm talking about here. Does anybody here like omelets? Anybody like omelets? I like omelets, like a big omelet. Okay, uh, this is what you do. You get your bowl and let's say you crack three eggs. Now you got a big old bowl of eggs. And then you go grab a fourth egg and you crack it. It's a rotten egg. Has anybody ever done that? 
I did one time. It's, it's a life-changing event when you do that. Oh, yeah, I've done it one time. I'll never forget it. What do you do? You don't want to throw out the three eggs, right? So you get, get a couple more eggs. Crack those in there. And then you get some cheese, some bacon, some, some garlic powder, paprika, salt and pepper. Mix it all together, and you make your omelet. How's that omelet going to taste? Let me tell you, you're about to have a bad day when you eat that omelet, right? And so it is what you, what you believe to be true. Doctrine is not a dirty word. Doctrine means a set of beliefs that is held to and taught. Doctrine and theology are important. After all, the Bible says all scripture is inspired by God. Scripture, the word of God, is profitable for teaching. Teaching, that's what's right. The scripture is profitable for reproof. That's what's not right. Uh, the scripture is profitable for correction. That's how to get right that which was wrong. And the scripture is profitable for the training of righteousness. That's how to remain right. Scripture, the Bible, is the only thing that can do this because scripture and God are the one things that are perfectly right every time, all the time. Now, Pergamum, they compromise doctrinally. And that's never a good thing. Jesus says, you have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam. There were people in the church that were allowing people to come in the church and teach false doctrine. Hey, let's just open a Sunday school. And here's this guy that's going to teach Balaam. Here's another one. He's going to teach the Nicolaitans. And the church allowed it. There's been times in my ministry where I had to shut down some unbiblical teaching. And there are people that said I was being hypercritical. Heresy is heresy. And if you allow the slightest bit of heresy, it's going to ruin your omelet. So here Jesus is, te- is, Jesus is critical towards Pergamum. This is what Jesus says to the church. You're too tolerant. Jesus says you're too tolerant, too sympathetic, too accommodating, too false teachings, and the behavior that's contrary to Scripture. Christians today are accused of being intolerant. Christians are labeled as intolerant because there's this redefining of the word tolerance. Years ago, I remember I was at a, a pro-traditional marriage march. And I remember I'm walking on the sidewalk. I've got my sign that is a very pro-traditional marriage of one man married to one woman. That's my view on marriage. I'm holding that sign. A car pulled up next to me, and the pastor rolled down the window. I remember this very vividly. And he looked at me, he looked, read my sign. He looked at me, and he said, racism, yay, very sarcastically. I was like, What? How is the view of traditional marriage racist? You know why? Because there's a redefining of words. Words don't mean what they used to mean anymore, right? The word tolerance today, it doesn't mean what it meant a few decades ago. In the past, the word tolerant meant we, can, we may disagree, but we respect the person's opinion. We're just going to agree to disagree. But today, that's not what tolerance means. Today, if you don't see the way, things the way I see them and accept my beliefs, then you're unloving. You're intolerant. Christians, we have a responsibility to speak truth, but we must always speak truth in love. The church is called to be a pillar of truth, and truth always trumps tolerance. So I'm going to ask a couple questions. 
To you personally, you don't have to ask out loud. Answer these questions in your mind as I ask these questions. And we'll see if we're not maybe in danger of falling in the same trap the city of Pergamum was, the church of Pergamum. Here's question number one. Do you have question number one? Question number one. Is your identity shaped by Christ or culture? There are some believers that allow their identity to be shaped by culture. Just indulge and and just, just a little bit of sexual sin, Right? A little religious pluralism, a little pagan worship. After all, who are we to say what's right or wrong? There is a pressure to conform. And the church at Pergamon, they gave into this pressure. Instead of being transformed, thinking differently, looking differently, instead they conformed. They molded into what the world said a Christian should look like and act like. And thus they weren't any different than the world. Our identities, who we are, what we believe, it should be found in Christ. Okay? Our identities, our beliefs should determine our behavior. Behaviors affects behaviors. Excuse me. Beliefs affect behaviors. That's what I meant to say. What I believe, it affects what I do. Right? The Bible, this is not just a book of information. This is the book of transformation. Because what we believe about Jesus has direct impact on our lives. He shapes my values. It it, it forms my convictions. What I believe about Jesus, and he has a direct effect on my marriage. How I interact with my wife. How I interact with my wife is based off of what I believe about Jesus. Or maybe you're not married. It should affect your singleness. It should affect your finances. It should affect all your relationships. What we think about, what we don't think about, is affected by Jesus. How we use our time and our talent, it's all affected by Jesus. So is our identity found in Christ or some some false idol? We all have these heart idols that compete with our heart. Compete our, our heart competes for Christ, if you're following me like that. Idols pursue us. And these idols, they always promise satisfaction. Oh, just come after me. I'm going to give you that satisfaction. You'll finally be fulfilled. But it always leaves us empty. Idols bait us, then leave us. And they always leave us wounded. Wanting more. So question number one, is your identity shaped by Christ or culture? Here's question number two. Question, are you compromising sexually? Are you compromising sexually? Because Balaam and the Nicolaitans, they encourage sexual sin. If we were to turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's your spiritual act of worship. I want you to know that sex is not just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing as well. Everything that we do with our bodies, even the act of sex, is an act of worship. I want you to know that sex before marriage, it's sin. The Bible calls it fornication. That's the word that God uses for it. Sex outside the marriage, the Bible calls it adultery. The Bible says that the marriage bed is to be pure and undefiled. A Christian can compromise on this. And when we do, we're guilty of the exact same thing the church of the city of Pergamon is guilty of. A Christian cannot be professing one thing. And then practicing another. I'll say it like this. Don't be a Pergamite. So question two. Are you compromising sexually? Question three. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You're good. Who do you fear most? 
man or God? Who do you fear? Do you fear man or do you fear God? One of the major themes of the book of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. The word fear means awe, reverence, humble submission to God. The Bible says that the fear of man, it's a snare, it's a trap. It it always places you in bondage. The the fear of man, that's where you're always looking for the praise of, you're, you're looking for the approval of, you have this fear of rejection, you desire to be accepted. The believers in Pergamum, they had a greater fear of man than they did of God. And this is what Jesus said. He said, repent. Jesus told the church, repent. If you believe and if you live your life, if it matches up to the city of Pergamum, this is what I would say to you. Repent. I repeat exactly what Jesus said. Repent. Read verse 16 of Revelation chapter 2. Therefore, repent. If not, what's going to happen if I don't, Jesus? What's going to happen? He tells you, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here's my fourth and final point this morning. There are benefits for Christians that do not compromise. The word repent, it is meteo in the Greek. It it, it means change your mind. I say it all the time. If you disagree with Jesus, I suggest you change your mind. A very correct word to say, repent. Jesus tells the church at Pergamum to stop, turn around, and go the other way. This is what happens on any typical Sunday. I think this happened in Pergamum, and I know this happens here. That there's a very convicting message that's preached from the word of God. And it directly relates to our lives. And in the moment, we're deeply convicted. And then we leave this place, go out the door, and go back to doing the exact same thing we did before. Doing the same things that we're convicted of. Don't do that. The church is an assembly of people, but it's still a group of individuals. Each individual must choose to repent. I can't repent for you. I can't do that. Only I can repent for me. You have to do that for you. Jesus says, if you don't, I'm going to come and and war with the individual with the sharp sword of my mouth. Jesus is talking about judgment here. Oh, that's only the Old Testament. No, right here, Jesus is talking about judgment. Repent, change your ways, or Christ will judge. The church is a collection of believers that are to admit they're wrong and then change their ways. I want you to know the gospel, the good news, it's not only for unbelievers. It's for believers too, right? The gospel of God's grace, it changes us from the inside out. Because when you know God's grace, that grace, his grace, it makes you want to change your your behavior because of we've been forgiven so much. Why should I do this? What is my motivation? Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will give him the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Well, manna, that's a reference to the manna that God gave the people there in the wilderness when they had nothing. Manna sustenance. God's going to provide you what you need if you repent 
Manna is the supernatural sustenance, the supernatural food. It finds its culmination in Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Do you get it? And then Jesus says he's going to give the hidden manna and a white stone. The best understanding of this can be seen in the ancient world because it was given to the victor of athletic event. Think of like a, a medal. I was just at the regionals this, this week, Friday, for, for wrestling, and the champions got a medal. That's what this is. And the, in Roman culture, was given a white stone to the victor, the one who won. And that, that, that white stone in the victor's hand, it got you access into a great party that went on afterwards. There was this feast given. You would go to the door. You would show your white stone, and you got access into that. It identified the individual as an overcomer, a victor, a more than conqueror. What's going to happen if you have that white stone? You have complete access to everything that God has waiting for you. But there's more. There, it says on that stone is a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And you're like, what is that name? I don't know. He tells us we don't know, but it identifies you. The victor, those that don't conform, that don't give, that don't cave, they're going to get a new name engraved on that stone. And that's going to get you access to all the regalia that, that God has at the very end that the Lord's going to give you a new name. In heaven, we're going to get a new body. And according to Revelation 2.17, we get a new name. What's my new name? I don't know. I hope it's Clint. I've always liked that name. It's a strong name. <laughs> I love that name. John's worked well for me, and I like that name too. Whatever you want, Jesus, that's what it's going to be. But all this is going to come to fruition at the Lord's Supper of the Lamb. If you don't know this, you need to know this. Have you ever been to an amazing wedding reception? That's what it's going to be. Boy, the greatest wedding reception you could possibly imagine when every believer ever is going to be there. They're going to be together. We're going to study this. we we'll get to Revelation chapter 19. It is awesome. And for those that accept Christ as their Savior, that's what's going to happen. If you don't fold to the whims of culture, you're going to get a new name graven on your white stone. Honestly, I, I can't even put to words what's going to happen. But you know who can't imagine what we're talking about? Antipas. Do you remember that guy? We talked about him earlier in verse 13. Jesus calls him his faithful witness. I want that to be me. I want that to be you. I want that to be this church, that we are Jesus' faithful witnesses. So whatever comes our way, we preach the gospel, the pure and true gospel, until Jesus comes. Did you know Jesus is coming back? So my only question, are you ready? Should that happen tonight, are you ready? Have you repented of your sins? Have you given your life to Jesus? There must come a moment in time where you see yourself as a sinner, how your sin separates you from Christ, but God loves you so much that Jesus came and he died. He took your punishment on that cross. And the Bible says, whoever calls on him, they will be saved. Have you called on the name of Jesus?